For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End of For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my friend, team member, co-worker, harm reductionist extraordinaire, Angela Mallet. Angela, welcome. Hello, hello. So what you may not know about the beginnings of End It For Good are <clears throat> Angela and I actually shared an office um, early on. Um, she was starting a um, law enforcement assisted diversion program in the town where we both lived at the time. And I was starting End It For Good. And she was coming with me to the events that we were hosting and uh, doing volunteer work, helping set up sound equipment for them. Um being my shoulder to cry on <laughs> afterwards, uh, which was definitely a thing once or twice. And um, so we just started having these conversations because our desks were literally three feet apart from each other. And so we would just be sitting there um, and something would happen or we'd get a phone call or an email would come in that would be something we kind of wanted to talk through. And the other person was the person who was sitting right there ready to engage in that conversation. And we were both working through lots and lots of questions about these issues. Um, Angela is a person in long-term recovery, which you heard in her um, podcast episode several back. You can go back and listen to that if you missed it. And both of us were, I, so I was a little bit ahead of her in changing my mind on drug policy and towards legal regulation. Um, but those there's so much complexity to that conversation, so many different ways that it impacts the world and people and um, and we had really different experiences, me having never even like seen marijuana and Angela having been in recovery. And so these like just being able to have these conversations. So a couple of months ago, we were talking and we just happened. I don't remember who mentioned it. One of us mentioned, you know, it'd be really fun if we could take some of that conversation content and turn it into podcasts. I almost wish we had had like a recorder like a going recorder. <laughs> in those Imagine. early days. Been dangerous in that little video. <laughs> that yeah. Yes, that's true. But we did have a lot of great conversations just working through the questions that we had, the questions other people were asking us. Um, 
And so we wanted to spend a couple of episodes going back to some of those core questions that we've worked through ourselves and that other people ask us. So Angela, ready to dive in? Let's do it. So the first one we wanted to look at is one of the things we hear most, which is like, what would the world look like if we legalized substances for adult use? We're never talking about legalizing them for children. So this is really for adult use. Um, Similar, think about something like alcohol or tobacco. It's behind an age-restricted counter. There's potency and purity guidelines. There's all sorts of regulations that manage these potentially harmful substances that are already legal. So what would it look like if that expanded to more substances? And particularly, how would that impact um, the criminal justice system and how it operates related to those substances? And so I just wanted to kind of dive in and pose that to Angela, um, particularly from her experience as somebody whose life has been deeply harmed by some of these substances. And so Angela, when you think about the world as it could be. And let's take, let's not take like all drugs. Let's take something like, you know, smokable opium. Like let's don't say heroin. Let's just say like what could be kind of a step towards legally regulating a low potency version of something that lots of people use. So let's just take like smokable opium, which used to be legal and think about what would that world look like? if that was legal again for adults to use. So begin talking through that. Let's, let's talk through that. So I think about these things all the time. I think about, uh, you know, while I'm doing some mundane activity, I'm thinking through, like, what is, what would the world actually look like if substances were legal and people could access them? And because I have, you know, my experience was problematic substance use. So I think about what does that look like for people like me? who are struggling with some kind of trauma in their life or they've gone through a hard time and and then the substance use turns into something problematic. You know, I'm, because that's the lens that I see things from, I'm thinking through like, would this be helpful for them? Would it hurt, be hurtful for them? Um, So Christine and I wanted to talk through that on this podcast. So, there's all kinds of opinions out there on what a regulatory model could look like for substances that are that are illegal right now. So something like opioids, if opioids were legalized, um, there's different opinions on how you would access them. Do the more low grade ones available over the counter or more potent ones available in clinical settings? Lots of opinions on that. There's books out there about it. Christine and I are not the regulatory experts. Uh, what we want to talk about is what does that look like in, in the lives of real people? And like, is it hurtful for them or is it helpful for them? So let's just kind of brainstorm and talk through that. So let's say, you know, wave the magic wand tomorrow. These substances are legal. And and let's talk through some scenarios of what it might look like for people who access them. So let's say someone decides like their, me- their preferred method of relaxation is using smokable opium on the weekends, right? They work during the week, they've got a a professional career and they don't like alcohol, marijuana is not their thing. Um, Their preferred method of relaxation is through smokable opium. Um, And they do so non-problematically for however long. 
And so that's hard to that's hard to imagine, especially for somebody like me, because I'm like, oh, if you're messing around with opium, it is not going to be good. Just, <laughs> just hang on. It does not turn out well. Um, but that's that's my experience. Uh, and that is not what the data shows is the experience of the majority of people in our country. Data shows that that 90% of people who use substances do so non-problematically. And it's only 10% of people who develop addictions and to and problems with those substances. So, so we kind of like always... hang on there because I think, okay. that's, you know, when I read that, I was like, what, what, what? That's yeah. insane. Surely not. Isn't it the other way around? 90% of people who use, you know, drugs become addicted alcohol. to them and you know 10 percent now alcohol see i would have said alcohol no 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 i can see where only 10 percent of people who drink alcohol have a problem because i see the non-problematic use all around me but these other drugs that we've kind of kept hidden and in the shadows no it's the opposite for that you know 90 percent develop an addiction and yet that is not like you said that is not what research shows it's it's the other way around that that non-problematic use might be hidden from us because it's illegal. And so people aren't, we're not able to see that, but it is very much there. Um, And that's pretty mind blowing, but it really does reshape the way you think about risk versus, um, you know, if I could totally see, if you think 100% of people who ever use any form of opium become addicted to it, like, you, there's no way for you to imagine a world where any sort of legal access isn't just an absolute chaotic disaster. Right. Um, and there certainly will be some disaster aspects to it. Like there is with alcohol. Alcohol is incredibly destructive and yet it isn't for most of the people who use it. I almost feel like we should be walking through these scenarios with alcohol because it is just less, it's, you know, less, um, less controversial than something I'm talking about is smokable opium available. But since, since that's the example we came up with, let's continue on it. All right. So, so 90% of the people are going to do so non-problematically. They're going to access it in whatever way that they want to, they're going to get up the next day and cut their grass and they're going to go back to work on Monday and it's no big deal. Right. But I'm a person in, in long-term recovery and I'm an advocate for people in recovery. So, so I'm always concerned about how policies impact us and, and people like me. So let's talk through what it looks like for when use of these substances does begin to become problematic. Right. And w- so let's say one of those one of the people who are accessing this low dosage opium, um, let's say they go through something hard in their life. They have a a parent pass away, they get a divorce, they lose their job, something happens, right? To spark or to, to begin increased usage. What does that look like for this individual, right? So, because the because it's illegal, let's say let's hopefully that person has a healthcare professional that they can talk to about it, 
Do they go to their doctor and they say, look, I, you know, I've been using this over-the-counter opium. I, I know that my use has increased. I see that. And, and I need to talk about it. I need to do something about it. So ideally, in a perfect world setting, the doctor would say, okay, well, we can switch you to a medication like buprenorphine or methadone if you would like to, to stop the opium use, or we can switch you to some other, you know, increased form of this. But also, let's also get you in therapy and figure out what is, is prompting this increased usage. Now, that is making some really big assumptions that everyone who's using it has access to private health care, which we know is not the case for everyone in our country. There's lots of people who do not have the privilege of being able to go to a doctor whenever they need to, or they have you know, insurance to be able to do so. But, you know, even if you are accessing some kind of public health care through a FQHC, which is a federally qualified health center or a community health center um, where they have sliding scale fees in a world where these substances are not illegal and they're not criminalized, whoever your health care provider is, you can go and be honest about your use. You do not have to go in fear of being kicked out or the police called on you because you're disclosing that you're using this substance. And I think just that, like, the the space to be honest about the substance use and why you're using it will go, I mean, I think that will completely change the tone of the conversations around substance use and think- access to care. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. So for people who haven't experienced a substance use disorder and had negative interactions with healthcare providers around that, I think it is hard, it is it is easy for somebody like me to think, well just go talk to your doctor. Like surely doctors of all people know that this shouldn't be stigmatized because they're healthcare providers. You know, this is like their this is this is what they do. And yet I hear from people over and over and over again who have, who are in recovery or still struggling, that as soon as they disclose that they have in the past or are currently struggling with a substance use disorder, they're, uh, the, the vast majority of them have the experience that they are immediately treated as like they've got leprosy or they, yeah. you know, maybe that's at best, like at worst would be like, you are a terrible person, not just you, you have a terrible thing and I don't want to kind of be close to you, but like, oh, you are one of those people. Um, and the, the quality of care, the respect from healthcare professionals is like immediately down the toilet. And I think probably there's a lot of reasons for that. I was talking with a guy who's a, um, uh, he was an EMT for a while. He's a nurse practitioner and he worked in the ER for a while. And he was like, the, the challenge is when you work in the ER day in and day out, and you just have the same people coming in all the time who are addicted to drugs and they're trying to get drugs from you 
because, you know, it's if they can get them from you, then they might have to pay for them or it's you know safer than what they get on the street or cheaper than what they get on the street or whatever. It just jades you like you just it's so hard to feel compassion when you're constantly trying to be manipulated into giving someone who is addicted to drugs more drugs. And so you just end up like sort of making these blanket categories like all people are sort of like these people that I am interacting with every day that is so frustrating to work with. So I just want to give the other side of that. Like there is um, apart from sort of personal bias, which is a real thing. There is also, there can be like, we've, we've set up this system where it's so difficult for people to access the substances that they want to use, that the, the means that they take to try to get those substances end up creating lots more problems. Like, going to the ER all of the time. What do you think about that? Um, yes, to all of that, um, have experienced all of that. Um, you know, but I also think about the, the risk that healthcare providers even have to take to, um, it, it's such a risk for them to even think about prescribing controlled substances to people who want them or need them. Um, they are constantly being monitored by the pharmacy boards, by you know, DEA and all of these, these different, not to just call out the DEA, but all of these, you know, different enforcement agencies that are looking at doctors under a microscope with a constant threat of you will lose your license if you overprescribe or if you are giving out, um, controlled substances to, to people who need them and who want them and don't have a, a real need. So I think all of that plays in into the stigma around people with substance use disorder in the healthcare system. Um, and regulating these substances and legalizing them and giving us a regulatory model where medical providers can have honest discussions with people who want to use them about safety, about dosages, about has your has your use increased, and if so, then maybe we need to, then we need to bring in a therapist and let's talk about why. You know what are the underlying um, things happening in your life that's driving increased substance use. Those honest conversations and and finding of solutions can only happen when in a space where where these substances are regulated and legally accessible by people. So now let's finish playing out our scenarios here. So we've got, we have someone who's now had, they've lost their job. I don't know if we decided on what bad thing happened, but something did. So we and, had a non-problematic user and yep. really there's no, there's no need for intervention. If somebody's yeah, non-problematic using they're alcohol, fine. we don't, we don't intervene in their lives. So then we have this early problematic where they can go to a doctor, talk about it. Now we're moving to this is this is really escalated. This addiction has escalated into severely problematic use. Yeah. So now uh, let's say a person has has moved into like now they've developed substance use disorder and they are, they're no longer in control of their use and they're dependent on the substance and they are continuing to use despite consequences. 
So at this point, with your healthcare provider, you know you can now move into conversations about stronger dosages and stronger substances. Like, you know, if you are consuming lots and lots and lots of smokable opium every single day, right? We really need to talk about, okay, are there maintenance medications that will help, help you uh, regain some stability in your life? So like we move you over to something like Subutex or buprenorphine or Sublocate or any of the, the medications that are approved now for medication assisted therapy or let's put you in a heroin assisted treatment program. Maybe we up your level of care in mental health services. So maybe you join an IOP program if you want to, or Which do you need to go at, what's IOP? Uh, intensive outpatient? <laughs> Sorry, me and me and all my my acronyms. The acronyms. I do this to Christina all the time. She just, sometimes she stops me and sometimes she just looks at me crazy because she has no idea what I'm talking about. Now I've learned all of these, but I know most people don't know because I didn't know when I started out. So people start throwing around acronyms and you're like, oh dear, I don't know what's happening here. So, uh, you know, they, you up their level of care. All right. So let's talk about costs. Who pays for this stuff? Who, who's going to if a person has moved into non-problematic substance use, or I'm sorry, if a person has moved into problematic substance use and they are not functioning in their daily lives and, and they need increased services, where does that cost come from? Uh, we know like right now, today, our mental health and treatment system in our country is just standing on barely one leg. It's so under-resourced and it's so underfunded. But, you know, I would like to think that if we reallocated the resources, the existing resources we have in our country right now, not new tax dollars. I don't want to pay any new taxes, Christina, but we take the, <laughs> the existing drug intervention dollars that we have and we shift some from the enforcement category over to the prevention and treatment category, then we should have plenty of resources to be able to provide services to people who need them. So and it's really not even just the drain, like the, like we're already paying just in other areas. So when you have people that are going to emergency rooms every single day, there there is a literal cost to that, that yes. people are paying. Taxpayers are already paying that in a lot of different ways. Um, it may not be. So we hear a lot of people say, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pay for treatment. Well, that's fine if you don't want to. There are lots of different ways to to offer what people really need that's going to help society as a whole. That could be through nonprofits that offer it. It could be through, you know, publicly funded things that are already publicly funded. Um, or it could be through moving some of that money from enforcement, like you said, towards prevention and treatment, uh, expanding some of those resources. So it's not, um, I think people automatically think there's only, there's just one solution and it's, you know, 
put put a new tax on everything and just send all that mm-hmm. money to your local, you know, public whatever. Um, but that's just not the case. There are lots of like I was just in a, at a conference and I heard um, the founder of the Phoenix, which is like this mm-hmm. like national organ recovery organization that uses physical activity to build recovery and offer this recovery community to people. Yeah. Um, and it's at, they, so mm-hmm. so they fundraise for that. Like people don't pay to be part of that program. They fundraise from people who have a vision for hey let's. Let's allow people who have lived experience and have found something that has worked for a lot of people to offer that to more people because this helps build a society and this is a better way to handle addiction than it is to, you know, for a lot of people giving to them, they don't, they don't want to give it an extra tax dollars. They want to do it through something like the Phoenix, which is nonprofit. They, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going out and raising money. So there's lots of different ways for things to be funded. It isn't necessarily that, um, there's just one way, but it's really important to just own the fact that we are already paying for the problems that we're not addressing in the right way. We're just paying for it in other areas. We've got massive workforce strain from not just from people who are struggling with an addiction themselves, but I talked to one mom whose son had an addiction and she like specializes now in speaking about the drain on family productivity, like family members of people who have a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. And and the 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 productivity drain for them is they're trying to manage this incredibly stressful situation happening at home and also trying to come to to their job every day and do you know be productive like the lost productivity that's happening across the board uh for people like there's all these different ways that society is paying already for our mishandling of um people's problematic substance use and we got to own that at the same time mm-hmm. that we're trying to develop a better a better model. It's not that we're in like a neutral state right now. We're already paying like in all these different areas. We just want to see, could we pay less if we actually put the money and the resources in the right area? Yeah. And I don't I don't want any of my law enforcement friends here going to listen to this podcast to get mad at me. I'm not just <laughs> saying I'm not I'm not saying we you know just take resources and funding away from enforcement um what i what i should have said is we shift some criminal justice response the funding that goes with criminal justice responses and move it over into prevention and treatment um, not not just enforcement Hey friends, you may be listening to this and you're new to this conversation or you don't agree with our perspective and that's fine. You're welcome here. But if you agree and you want to know what you can do to spread the movement, head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and the word minutes and sign up for our weekly two minutes for good email. It gives you one thing to do in less than two minutes to expand this conversation. You're busy and this is a quick way to make a difference. So, if we're, so because if we're not arresting people for possessing these substances anymore, that is right. freeing up that like there is a, and not just for possessing, but if we're allowing some, but the if we're, and we're also not legally, prosecute, right. We're not prosecuting because yes. like, you know, just arresting is like a little bitty, you know, minute amount of dollars compared to the larger portion of funding that comes along through the prosecuting and, and, incarcerating incarcerating all of that the whole thing not if we're not doing that anymore then 
there are there are freed up resources that can now be moved over into into prevention and treatment. So, but that's not to say that the criminal justice system is not still needed. It is absolutely still needed. Absolutely. In a world in a world where substances are legalized and regulated and accessible because that 10% of people who do develop problematic substance use disorder um, and are not able to access healthcare, not able to access, or for whatever reason, you know, it leads into like, this is a problem and they're committing crimes to feed their substance use. So what happens there, right? Because that, that will still happen. There, there is no magic wand that's going to make that go away. We are not living in, you know, in delusion to, and think, we don't think that. We know that that's still a case. And so this is why I'm, I'm such a big fan of things like intervention courts. Because I think once we get to this point, um, there are programs in place that can really help individuals who are problematic problematically using and committing crimes. So let's, what's that look like, Christina? Someone has, so now we've gone from, you know, all these different levels of substance use to now someone is in full-blown chaotic substance use and they are, you know, committing theft or assault or some kind of crime where they are endangering or hurting others or stealing from others to feed their addiction. Driving under the influence driving under the influence, domestic violence, right? So there is absolutely still a need for criminal justice intervention in these cases. So someone, so let's say that happens. What's the scenario? Think of one for us. Okay, so we've got like uh, somebody who did not want to be under the care of their doctor anymore and they have just gone there. They found uh, the the small underground market that's probably still there, um, and they're they're buying from their friends, somebody, and they it is getting really expensive, and right. so they have started doing some petty theft to be right. able to then go pawn what they steal and pay for the addiction. Now, in the meantime, they're under the influence most of the time. So as they're driving to and from the pawn shop and wherever else they're going, um, they're driving under the influence. They end up uh, getting pulled over, are clearly under the influence. Maybe they've even got some stolen merchandise yeah. in yeah. their car. Right. What happens? So they are arrested, not for possession, but they are arrested for for driving under the influence and for possession of stolen property. So now let's take a look at what happens there. So that individual, like you have to go, you're arrested. You have, you're going to have to go to court for your arraignment. I don't know if there's going to be a bond. We don't have to get that far in the weeds. Um, but there, there has to be a criminal intervention and accountability for those crimes. So you may say, Hey, like maybe that's your, your moment where you're like, I definitely have developed problematic substance use. And that's why I did these behaviors. Um, And at that point, you know, I think programs like pretrial diversion programs or any kind of diversion program is a, is a place where the justice system says, okay, we recognize you were doing ABCD 
because of your substance use? And are you, are you willing to go and get help for that? And that person has the choice to make, right? They can, or they can say no, and they want to go serve their time. They can do that too. Um, but I think understanding that no one, no one had ended for good and, and certainly not anyone, you know, that we, any spaces where we're talking about these issues, are we ever insinuating that there will never be a criminal justice response or there's not a space for that? There absolutely is. Uh, right. Can, because those are we, crimes like against other people. You're endangering the community if you're driving while you're impaired or you have committed theft against someone. You have someone mm -hmm. else's property. They deserve justice. Now, that doesn't mean we can have a difference of opinion or we can have a separate conversation around like length of sentencing, even if it yeah. is a sentence in jail. That's part of that. Like that doesn't mean we're saying, well, 20 years for petty theft is is the right thing to do. Um, no. We're just making the point that even if we don't arrest people for possession of a substance anymore, even if we allow markets to operate legally, that there is still absolutely a need for accountability and uh, criminal justice involvement of some sort to keep the rest of the community safe when you right. are doing things that hurt other people. Correct. You know, and there, there's some really new and, um, and I think promising justice responses out there. So a couple of years ago, Christina and I went to this uh, one day conference on restorative justice. And I was just fascinated by this idea of restorative justice. We don't have anything like that in our state currently. Um, I know that there were people, different prosecutors who were there that day and who were really interested in it. So they may now have, have started implementing something like this, but I don't know of any. So restorative justice is where, um, let's go back to the same scenario that Christina is talking about. You know, the person's pulled over, they have possession of stolen property. Uh, in a restorative justice scenario, a I'm gonna I don't I'm gonna call him an intervener. I don't know who that might be. I don't know if it's a you know someone from the prosecutor's office or someone from the sheriff's office, but there is a a neutral party who re outreaches to the victim and says, you know, we've arrested this person. They have admitted that they have problematic substance use going on. They've gone and and completed treatment and now have and and now are back on the path to recovery um do you have any interest in discussing what justice for this individual looks like letting both parties play a role in what does accountability look like for the crime that you committed against me i think that just brings a so much um opportunity for people so much opportunity for growth and and so much opportunity for our justice system to improve when you're letting both parties come. You know, I've never been in those scenarios, but I do know that I, I carry a high value for compassion for people who have made mistakes um, because that, that was shown to me once before. And they've also where they've tried restorative justice approaches. And there are countries like Japan that has a very much of this model where the victim is the center of the justice conversation, not the state. 
Uh, and mm. that is not what we have in the United States. We have a, a state-centered model of justice where you can even have a victim who is saying, no, this is wrong. Do not send this person to prison. Do not give yeah. them 20 years. And the state says, no, we're going to. And that to me is like, that just seems so wrong to me that crimes are, are committed against people. That's the, the, the state is sort of the enforcer of of justice, like trying, making mm -hmm. sure that the, the power is there to provide justice for people. Um, but I think we have sorely lost our way when the victim's voice is not listened to because, you know, whatever, there's a prosecutor who thinks something different um, that I think we have like lost the center of the whole conversation. The whole point of that law should have been that the victim gets justice. Um, right. And restorative justice recenters that victim voice to say, you know, are you open to having a conversation with the with the perpetrator, and are they open to a conversation with you? And what they found is that victim satisfaction in justice is much higher using this model, where they have an opportunity. Maybe they don't take it, but they have an opportunity mm -hmm. to, you know, have a moderated conversation and have a voice in what actually happens and how they how they feel that justice is done, what's going to help them have closure. Um, so it's really promising. There are other ways of doing this than we have done. Uh, one of the most like profound things will wrap up. Um, I heard someone talking a couple of years ago and they said, you know, uh, when we look, when you look through the history of the world, you see all of these leaps forward. You know, it used to be there was like no sense of human dignity or, you know, the laws that protected like vulnerable people like that used to just be not a thing at all. Mm -hmm. It was just the strong survive period. End of story. So you have like all of these different like seasons of humanity where if you could go back to before those things were brought in, people were like, no, this is like this is the best way the world can be. And then you have this leap forward and you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe we used to live in that world. Like, what were those right. people thinking? But then you go along, you know, 100 years, couple hundred years more and you make another leap forward and you're like, oh, gosh, I can't. They were living in the dark ages. I can't believe they didn't see the light. Um, and so, you know, the, the person was saying, is it so crazy to think that there are ideas out there that we haven't implemented yet that would be another massive leap forward in human thriving and flourishing and uh, decreasing harm and suffering. Like the crazy thing is to think that we have somehow arrived at a utopia today that all of these previous seasons of human existence just hadn't gotten to. Like that takes I'm a, smiling. <laughs> a massive right. amount of pride to come to that place that like we are, we've arrived. Is This is it. This is the best no, it is. This is absolutely not it. You know, we, did you watch the documentary that I suggested called We Rise Up uh -uh. or We Will Rise? No. You gotta, you have to watch it, Christina. You have to watch it. It's, uh, it's on Prime. It's called We Will Rise. And it, it's talking about exactly what you've just said. Like we, we have gone through throughout history, gone through these seasons of, of you know, frustration where societies are just there's all these challenging problems, and then there's a growth growth spurt, and you go through that growth spurt, and you look back, and you're just like, oh my gosh, that was the dark ages, and and so in this documentary, it talks about like we've got all these social issues plaguing our world right now, but like we're on the cusp of growth 
Like we're just, we're right there. We have the capacity, we have the technology, we have, we have the connectedness. Like we're now, our world is more connected than it's ever been. And, and like, we're just right on the cusp of this growth spurt. And it makes me just so hopeful. I, I'm ready for it. So I'll leave you listeners with the thought of, um, somebody said to me, this is probably a year or two ago now that they felt like, you know, future generations are going to look back at where we are now and they're going to be mind blown that we ever handled substance use as a criminal justice issue. It -hmm. will seem foreign to them. Like, how could you have not seen, you even had the research that said, this is not about terrible people wanting to go out and destroy their life or their family or their community. Like you had the research. How Mm -hmm. could you continue to perpetuate that system when everything you had told you that it doesn't work? Um, And I think that's what we want to do at End of For Good is say, can we begin to envision that world where we've made that switch, where we've made that next leap in how we handle substance use? Um, It could apply to lots of other things, mental health issues as well. Like we know so much more than people knew even 20 or 30 years ago. Can we actually implement that? It's really hard to do. It's really hard to change, hard to change the way we think. It's hard to change the way that our laws operate, but that no season of human growth has come because it just happened. It has come by people committing and slogging through years of change, of advocating for change, of helping it to usher through so that we get a world where everyone thinks this is the obvious solution. This has always been this way, but it wasn't. It wasn't the obvious solution to a whole bunch of people. It only became obvious because there were a few committed people who said, we're going to help usher in this next step of of growth and of a flourishing world. And that's what we hope our work is doing is ushering in that next step of growth in that better world where we handle substance use um, as, as an, a non-issue if it's non-problematic and as a health issue, if it is. Thanks, Angela. Yep, yep. This was fun. I'm, I'm here for it. Let's do it. All right. We'll be back again next time. We're going to talk about um, the chain reaction of harm from criminal justice interactions. Uh, I am convinced that we will only change when we understand the massive amount of collateral damage that's happening today. I think that's what's holding us back because we don't understand the price we're paying. And we're going to talk through a little bit of that next time. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? By inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.